We're in the book of Revelation now. If you would turn there in your Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one there out of the pew rack in front of you. And uh, maybe you don't have one at home. You're welcome to take that home as a gift. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. We have began uh, going through a series, and we've called it the Seven Churches of Revelation. Pretty self-explanatory what that is, right? Seven Churches of Revelation. And uh, we started uh, in Ephesus, and we went through last week into Smyrna, and now this week into Pergamum. And uh, we'll have the next four weeks to get and go over the rest of these. But this is, again, a, a letter, letters to the churches from the Lord Jesus. And someone made the comment last week. They said, I never really noticed that, that these, these letters, as I read in the book of Revelation, I have the red letter edition, right, that they're in red. They're the red letters. They're, they're the words of Christ. And that's because the words of Christ were given directly to John to give to the churches in Revelation. So uh, certainly we understand that all of the Bible is the word of God, the it is, it is given us to, to us by the authority of the Spirit of God, and we need to know that. Uh, but when we see the red letters, it kind of makes us perk up a little bit, doesn't it? Makes us think a little more like, oh, Jesus was actually speaking here. Let's listen to what he says. And his exhortations are that if we would have ears to hear, we should hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Uh, we talked about during the first week how it feels a little bit like the report card we got when we were kids, right? We had a report card sealed up in an envelope, and we were on that long walk home because you weren't supposed to open it, and your parents would know if you peeked, and their parents would know if it somehow didn't make it home, on your way home, the dog couldn't eat your report card. That's what happens, right? But there's a little nervousness there. It's like, what, what is it going to say? Did I do well? I think I did well. And, and when Jesus is writing these letters to the churches, that's what these are, right? These are report cards to the churches. And, and as this letter is written, it's not just le- your, your little section, your four or five verses isn't the only one read to your church. You get to get all of it to you. And honestly, I think that, that a lot of it applies across the board. Like within our church, there can be many of us struggling in different areas that many of these churches were struggling, and we need to hear the message. Because the message is not only written to the church, it is also written to the individuals within the church. And as you and I are now partakers of this and, and get to, to um, have the Lord's word uh, thousands of years later, it is still relevant for us today as a church and as individuals within the church. We started with Ephesus. And we, and we looked at Ephesus as the, the loveless church. It was the loveless church, right? Uh, Jesus said, you lost your first love there. And we, we uh, understood that when Jesus wrote and is writing to these churches, he makes a statement that says, I know. And Alistair talked about that this morning. I know. And it's great to have a Jesus, a God that knows us. It's also a curse, isn't it? Because he knows. It's like that parent, when you come home, you're like, how do they know that you, you, you had no idea that, that word got back to them, but somehow word got back to them. And I'm talking for you older folks like me and up, when we didn't have cell phones, it was just landlines, somehow your parents knew still. Today, of course, they know. There's pictures and posts and Instagram and text messages already to your parents before you even get through the front door, right, kids? But Jesus knows. And that can be refreshing and a blessing, and it can also feel like a curse at times. But we looked at Ephesus and, and, and really challenged us in this way, that God, he says, I know what and who you love. I know what and who you love. Like, that could be really good if we really love Jesus and love his church and love being obedient to him. That could be really bad if we're faking it, because he knows what and who we really love. Last week, we looked at Smyrna as the suffering church, and they were suffering persecution, extreme persecution, and Jesus says this, I know what you're willing to suffer for. And that could be, again, a great blessing when we're suffering for the cause of Christ, that we stand up for Christ and persecution comes. But it could be a curse when we're really not willing to suffer 
much for the sake of Christ, and we really have it more easy than we should, and don't speak when we should. He knows what we're willing to suffer for. And today we're looking at Pergamum, and Pergamum is labeled as the compromising church. The compromising church. And, and we're looking at this, this statement here that Jesus, he says, I know what you really believe. I know what you really believe. Now today as we look at Pergamum, and then next week as we look at Thyatira, uh, there are two churches similar in the way that Jesus approaches them, but, but and, and both of them are dealing with sin within their churches. But the first one today, as we look at Pergamum, we see it more of a, a slithering snake kind of sneaking in, right? It's kind of, things are starting to creep in here at this church. We're in Thyatira. It's like, let's just throw out everything we thought we knew and it was right, and let's just make a new doctrine based on the world standards. It was not, it was like the roaring lion came in, devoured, and spit everyone out. Where in Pergamum, it's like the snake is slithering around. You better check under the pew because you might get bit. And so we're going to see that today, and that's not, hopefully not real, right? Pergamum uh, is, is uh, one of these cities that was like this, this royal city. It was more elevated, elevated uh, about 1,000 feet above sea level. It, it, was, it was one of those that was considered more of a royal city. Uh, it rivaled some of the greatest cities in, in the empire. Uh, and it, 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 had, it had a library that rivaled that of the library in Alexandria and Egypt. So there was this amazing history there. And they, they loved the fact that they could hold all this information and all this knowledge and be the center of philosophy and the arts and, and science. Um, I, I can't remember the, the name of the doctor. The, the, they, they actually, um, a Greek myth, uh, Asclepius, Asclepius? Someone might know that. Asclepius, Asclepius let's call it that. What's, the, what's the, the key to having red names? Remember this? Speed and confidence. I, I lack that. Asclepius, there we go. Right, so uh, he was, it was marveled like this is this is medical healing was all about Asclepius, and and so they they just gave uh, worship and gave uh, sacrifices to Asclepius in order to be healed. Uh, there was at, at Pergamum there was this huge huge temple area built like this this throne of Zeus, right? They, they worshipped Zeus and give honor to Zeus. They were they were a, a, a group that just said let's throw everything together and worship uh, the imperial cult. The Roman imperial cult was huge here. You dropped the incense in and you said, uh, Caesar is Lord. That's what you did. Much like in, uh, we saw last week with uh, Smyrna, where they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't give in, so they were persecuted there. So there's a lot of this going on in Pergamum. Pergamum, the name actually means uh, married. And as we look at that and, and think about that, uh, we, we should be reminded that we are to be a pure bride of Christ and to keep ourselves be, from being defiled by the sin in the world. Uh, what, what does real married look, mar being married look like? It, well, it doesn't look like adultery. Right? It shouldn't look like defilement and sin. It should look like reverence and covenant and purity. So there's a little bit of that we'll see today as well. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read our passage in Revelation chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. God, we thank you that as we look to the word of God today, that your spirit is here to guide us into this truth. God, we ask that you would reveal the ways that we are maybe harboring, harboring anger or, or sin in our lives. God, letting sin slip in in some way. God, that we're trying to exchange your truth with a lie. God, help us come and move into a place of repentant faith and trust in you that we would honor your word and elevate your word, believe your word, God, and we would hold fast to you. We thank you for this time you've given us together guide our time. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2. I'll read verses 12 through 17. Write to the angel in Pergamum, 
Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one that conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. All right, so we've been breaking these sermons up into sections. We look at, uh, first, always the approval. What did Jesus say is they're doing well? Then we look at the accusation, like what G- the charge that Jesus has against them. Uh, and then we look at the, uh, the admonition, like the encouragement. Here's what you ought to do next. So, again, we break it up like that. You should have sermon notes there from your bulletin. You can follow along with the passages of Scripture that I'll be reading and, and, uh, and the points as well and take notes if you'd like. And on the back, as always, there's a discussion sheet you can use with your family, individually, or in a small group setting. So let's look at the approval. The approval is this. He says, you're holding on to my name. You are holding on to my name. You're holding fast to my name. Look at verses 12 and 13. Write to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Uh, you are, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So the approval is, listen, you are holding on to me. You're holding on to me. And again, he starts that out, I know. I know you. And he says, he says I know where you live. I think it's important for us to, to get. I know where you live. And again, that knowing can be a blessing and a curse. But here, uh, we're aware, he says essentially this. Guys, I know where you live. I know the environment in which you are seeking to be faithful to me in. I know what's going on. See, I think you and I sometimes might use an excuse, right? Oh, God only knew what I faced every day. He knows. He knows where you live. And for him to say, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, that's a pretty dark place. Would you agree? He knows where they live. He knows what surrounds them. He knows what comes against them. He says, I'm aware of the challenges that are going to work against you and the forces that work against you every single day. And more than that, we say this often, right? God did not get the address wrong. He knows where you live. He knows where you're trying to be faithful. He knows the environment, maybe maybe the marriage you're in or the relationship you're in or the the strain with the kids or your your workplace or or whatever it might be, the, the difficulties you're facing. He knows where you live. But he also knows in the middle of that what we really believe. And see, for some of these believers, as, as, as we'll see in a few minutes, uh, he, he had an he accusation, didn't he? He's like, I, some of you there are not all squared away. Yes, some of you are, man, you're holding on firm, and, and you ought to be holding on firm. See, holding fast to Jesus, it, it can be very difficult in this world. Amen? 
I think in this difficult world, holding fast to Jesus can be very good and easy sometimes, too. It's like there's nowhere else to hold. He's the only thing that's constant, and that should be the way we turn to him. It's very difficult, and especially in the midst of a culture who wants nothing to do with him and everything to do with self. I, I, I need you to understand that in the, in the place that we live, in the culture that we live, not just Mount Shasta or Duns Member Cloud or the surrounding area of Siskiyou County, but in California, United States, in the culture that we live in, we are being daily bombarded with what we should believe. Daily. And sometimes we think, well, I'll just go to church on Sunday and it'll fix all that. No, it will not. It will not. Holding fast to Jesus means holding fast to Jesus 24-7. Holding on to who he is and, and, and just letting our hearts fill with the wonder and awe and, and the satisfaction that is in Christ alone. I, I think about this, this bombardment. I had a really uh, interesting conversation, a, a needed conversation with my daughter this week. We were getting done with a, a baseball game, our last ba- uh, baseball game of the year. And it was late. My kids go to bed early. They're young. And, and we're heading out. We had to stop by the store and weed real quick on the way from the weed ball field. And we pulled in there and, uh, and we're waiting for Mathia. She went in, in to get a couple things. And a song came on the radio. And we have, we have the, the message on or, or Caleb or something on in our car, usually some kind of Christian music. But, but even that, I've said this before, it's so dangerous if we aren't thinking through what is being said to us. Now, I'm, I may offend you a little bit. I'm sorry. Not every song you hear on Christian radio is good for you. I, not every song we would, well, we would, we're trying the best we can at church, but not every song we would sing at a church on Sunday morning is good for you. There's a song, and it's so catchy. It's, I've, I've had spent all week trying to keep it out of my head. I've had to put my, my Spotify list on at night as I go to bed, so I'm not singing this other song. Now, it's catchy, and it's kind of fun, and it, it, it sounds good. It's a song called Brighter Days. Have you heard of this song? Maybe you're like, Brandon, you're going to offend me in a minute. Yeah, probably. It is so meaningless. It is so empty of any redemption. But I know there's going to be brighter days. Doesn't that make you feel good? What happens tomorrow when it's not a brighter day? There's no Jesus in this song. There's no redemption in this song. There's no, hey, you're a sinner and need the blood of Jesus for you, and he gave it to you, so just run to him and believe in that song. There's, there's going to be brighter days. I can feel it way down deep in me. That love's going to, well, it, trust me, it's, it's going to be brighter. Maybe. Maybe not. And in this world, probably not. So we stopped, and my daughter did not like that. And I pulled up the lyrics, and I started reading through the lyrics. And we had a long, heart-filled discussion about what the message was communicating to us, especially if we didn't have a foundation of biblical truth already laid. I, I can sing that song knowing a lot of backstory, right, of who I am and who I am now in Christ and what he's done for me. I, can, I know there's brighter days, but the brighter days that, that I sing of are not the brighter days tomorrow or this afternoon or next week. The brighter days are the bright, brighter days in heaven one day. That's where my hope will go. Not tomorrow. And it's not just a feeling down deep in my gut that's just like, oh, it's love's going to bubble over. No, the love of God now resides in me and the Holy Spirit indwells me. And that's what assures me of the brighter day that is to come. But if I have to do that, it's not a song worth just singing over and over. Right? We need to be ready for that. I, I told her, I said, listen, Bailey, I, I get it that this is hard, 
but she's like, it's a fun song. It is. It's a fun song. And maybe, I, and she's like, I wish we could just listen to the music of it, not the words. Me too. I get it. I told her a story when I was working as a, as a all-around hand at a, a grocery store, right? Not just a box boy, but did everything. And I was 15, 14, 15 years old, uh, you know, bagging groceries, ma- facing aisles, making displays, whatever they needed me to do. Cleaning underneath the milk. It's disgusting, by the way. O- almost as disgusting as underneath the beer and wine. But all the while, every day, day in and day out, as I was there working full-time that summer, they have music playing. I'm not thinking about the music. It's just on. And I'm facing aisles, and, I'm, and it's on and on. Eventually, I caught myself. What did I catch myself doing? Singing every single word to every single song. And I don't know about this radio station, whatever they were using. Maybe they still do it today. It was like it was a big playlist. It wasn't just like random. I actually got to the point it was weird. I knew the song that was coming next. And you know how you do that? You, you buy an album and you have the, the greatest hits and you sing a song, you know the next song, you kind of get ready for it. It was crazy. This is the radio that did this. It, the world is inundating, bombarding us day in and day out with information. And, and a lot of it is lies that we never choose to filter. I, I told you before at my house, I, I try the best I can. We don't have like cable or satellite stuff. We just have like, like the streaming services. But some have um, commercials because we don't want to pay more money. Maybe we should. I don't know. I try to, I try to mute every commercial. Right? Because it, it's getting here. Here. This heart. Not just my kid's heart. This heart. And it's getting in my kid's heart. It's, we're being bombarded all around us. But we need to hold fast to Jesus. Stay true to Jesus. In our Sunday school class, we talked about a mom there who's just like, is a, like a rock and just staying true, loving her family well. And it's like this forces are coming against, but she's just holding fast to Jesus, holding fast to the truth. It's so important to do that. So he mentions here, you're holding fast. I know where you live. I know the difficulties that you face. I know how you're being bombarded, but you're holding fast. Hold, continue to hold fast. And he talks about my faithful witness, Antipas. This word witness is, is the Greek word where it, we get martyr from. So this is not witness that, hey, this is the guy that was out there talking about Jesus. This is the guy who was killed because of his faith, right? So what was it? Why? Why We don't know. There's not much else said here. It was just a faithful witness martyred. But and again, this is a pagan environment, bombarded with pagan beliefs and, and expecting them to believe. So maybe he didn't offer the, the proper sacrifices to, to Zeus or Asclepius, right? Or, or maybe he didn't put the incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord, or he, he contra- contradicted or refuted uh, one of these philosophers at the library who was opening the book and saying, look at this new truth we have. And he said, no, that's not the truth. This is the truth. Whatever the thing, he was under severe pressure, and he was put to death for his faith. He would not deny his faith. And I think he might have said to us what Paul said in Timothy. And here's what he says, 2 Timothy 1. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Instead, and I think Antipas would have said this, he would have encouraged the church of Pergamum as he's going to his trial or going to his death, he, instead share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And he talks about God, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and his own grace, which he was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He's like, there's something, he's, he's right, there's something to be holding on to here. Hold on to Jesus. This, is now, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, 
has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What a powerful statement. A man going to his death, Paul, and then Antipas probably the same way, going to their death saying, listen, I'm holding on to the one who abolished death. You'll see, through faith in Christ, death is no more. It's gone. It has been defeated. And he's brought life and light to mortality or uh, immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, a teacher. This is why I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know, he says, I know. Now, this is awesome, right? God knows our heart. God knows you. God knows me. And now, Paul, as he writes, what, is he, what does he know? He knows God. He says, I know whom I have believed. I know who I am holding on to, and I am persuaded that he, the one I believe in, the one I'm holding on to, the one who abolished death, that he is able to guard what's been entrusted to me. You know why? Because there's going to be brighter days in heaven. That's why. That's what he's saying. And I think this is what Antipas would have said to the Pergamum church too. Hold on to Jesus. He's the one that's able to guard your heart. We hold on to him. Why? Because when we have him, Satan can't win. Jesus talking in Matthew 16, he comes to the region called Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Remember this? Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, right? Others say you're Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. Okay. But you, he says, but you, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What did he know? That this was, this was the one, the Messiah, sent by God to hold on to. This was the only one that there could be ever any hope in, or forgiveness in, or freedom in. It was in Jesus Christ. And Peter's like, I am holding on to you. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded. Here's how he responded. To those who hold on tightly to the Messiah. He said, but you, Simon, son of Jonah, uh, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You couldn't figure that out through your own city, your own books. You, you figured it out through the Spirit. He says, it didn't reveal to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, no amount of satanic oppression can destroy the genuine saving faith that the church of Pergamum knows and enjoys. They are in the smack dab in the middle of probably the worst of the worst. Just like Smyrna, the smack dab in the middle of it. Little church just trying to thrive and hold on to Jesus. That should be like us. When we hold on to Jesus, when we know the Messiah, when we, we have that saving faith in him, Satan will not be able to be victorious over us. The author of Hebrews says, hold on, let us hold on then to the confession of the hope that we have without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. The faithful one, the one that's always going to follow through and come through for us. So the approval, hey, you're holding on to my name. Are we? Hopefully we are holding on to his name. So what's the accusation? Number two. The accusation is this. Compromise is creeping in. Compromise is creeping in. Look at verses 14 and 15 in Revelation. But I have a few things against you. We'll stop there. I have a few things against you. Again, when he's writing to the churches, he's writing to the church and to individuals. So 
and it's, it's a big deal that he says this. I have a few things against you. And then he says, the next, next line, uh, you have some there who hold on to this teaching. So when the letter is written, he says, I have this against you. Big church, everybody, eyes on the letter, right? I have this against you. Here's what I have against you. Some here are holding on to a wrong teaching. What does that mean for us? That we are all responsible to not let those things start to creep in. Compromise cannot be allowed to creep in to my life, but I cannot allow compromise to creep in to yours either. We have a responsibility by God and through the Word, by His Spirit, to identify those things and to get them out of our church. We don't let compromise in. So I have a few things against you. You have some there, so not all, right? Some who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those, some of those, some people, who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So again, the reminder here is there is a, a, a warning, a charge to the church saying, listen, you're doing something wrong. And then there's individuals as well. We need to be reminded of that, right? It, it's, it's a message to the church and also us as individuals. So here's where he makes his accusation. Right? He's making it against the church for allowing it, but he's making it really against individuals, some within the church who are holding on to these ways of teaching. So the charge, against, or charge to indivi- individuals would be, hey, you need to repent, and you need to uh, get rid of your idolatry and stop practicing those things and come back to faith and hold on to Christ. And then the charge against the large church would be to repent from tolerating it, to not tolerate it, to stop just allowing it. <clears throat> so the Lord here mentions uh, Balaam and ba- Balak, and he, and he mentions uh, the practice of the Nicolaitans. Uh, commentators would say these are, these are probably synonymous things. They, they both mean to, to lord it over or lord of the people. And oftentimes it could be associated with uh, more restrictions, like, hey, follow all these rules and regulations, make sure you're ship shape, or that, that they would let, so they want to rule over the flesh, or they would allow the flesh to rule. Those are kind of the two ways you see this presented. To rule over the flesh would be you better shape up, you better do this, you better do that, jump how high, that's the rule over the flesh. For the flesh to rule over us is to give in to any inkling of the sinful nature in our flesh. Here he says to eat food as it was sacrificed to idols. Now, this is different than what we see in Corinthians. It's not that, that the, they should have a freedom just to eat food. It was that, that was maybe, maybe could have been sacrificed to idols. This is actually, we're taking the food, we're going to the idol, we're going to the false god. We're participating in sacrificing to it. We're participating in eating the food because we think somehow that's what's going to save. This is the practice that was happening there. And, and they mentioned Balaam and Balak. So what happened? The story is found in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. To sum it up, I wish I had my team kid sheet. We did this in team kid like two months ago. And it was just a really quick thing. But um, Balaam, or Balak, go, Balak king goes to Balaam and says, Balaam, you're the guy who can bring curses and blessings on people. Please come curse Israel. They're coming into the land. And, and I've heard their God's huge and amazing. They're going to wipe us out. We don't want this. Please come curse them. And Balaam's like, well, I've got to talk to God about that. And God says, no, don't do that. That is my people. You can't do that. And eventually he kind of starts, like, gets more money. He's like, okay, I guess I'll do it since the, the price is good and I'll, 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 I'll do it. And he starts heading to curse the Israelites. And, and an angel stops him from going and, and, and reveals himself. 
And, and then the, the donkey, remember this, the talking donkey, right? This is Balaam's donkey. He talked to him and said, what are you doing? This is not what you should be doing, right? He comes to his senses. So he doesn't. He goes to the mountain. He actually gives a blessing to the people. But ultimately, he still sells out and, and says, well, you, there's a way you can get to them, right? And, and the way is just, just sneak in. Be super friendly with them and, and, and just let them, have them think they can be super friendly with you as well. So what happens in Numbers 25? We'll pick up the, the story here uh, in verses 1 through 2, or one through, 1 through 5. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began, the people of Israel began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. If you can't beat them, join them, sway them, be nice to them. Right? What's the best way to change the culture? What, what, what's the same way you, you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. Just a bite at a time. Desensitizing their sin. Oh, th- this is okay. It's, uh, we, should, we should be okay with this. So he, he found no success in being able to curse these people. But he found success in sending young Moabite women into the camp to lure the men into sexual sin and, and lure the people into uh, idolatry and idol worship. And the Lord's anger burn. It goes on in verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in the, in the broad daylight before the Lord so that this, so his burning anger may turn away from Israel. These people had sinned against God. Now, I, I want to, you're like, well, that's really kind of an overreaction, right? It escalated quickly. This is God, and this is God's people he separated for himself who are now prostituting themselves with other gods, lesser gods, right? And, and it goes back to even the first part of our time in Revelation here, uh, right to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword out of his mouth. What do we think is going to happen here? When we decide we're going to prostitute ourselves with the world and, and, and just go into Pergamum and do whatever we want, the Lord is saying, no, that's not what I have set up for you. That's not what I'm going to tolerate. So Moses told the Israel's judges, kill each of the men who align themselves with Baal of Peor. <clears throat> Eventually there's a plague that was on the people as well. Listen, 24,000 people died. Why? Because compromise started to creep in. That's, and Jesus now is saying that to the churches. He's saying that to you and to me. <clears throat> Have we allowed compromise to slip in? Do, do we believe that, well, there's, there's some things that maybe aren't, I don't know, it's not for today anymore in the Bible. We, we, our, our culture has grown so much, we, we understand it differently, so we'll believe something else. Yeah, there's people that, that are like that. No, this is the word of God. It's infallible. It's the same like Jesus is today, yesterday, and forever. This is what we embrace. We don't, we don't set it aside to embrace tradition and rules and, and, and preferences. We say, God, what is pure? What, is, what does your church look like? How are we called to be holy? And we pursue that like we're running for our lives. Apparently, the some within the church of Pergamum were also being lured into this Pergamum society of sexual sin, of idol worship, of all kinds of idol practice, of sacrificing food to idols again and partaking in that as well. They were doing that, and they were also of the belief that they could live this life with their so-called faith and their worship practices. It was like, oh, just we kind of let it all come in and mix it in. 
I have a heightened sense of spirituality now. And we hide it, right? We hide it. They hide it. I've hidden it. It, it sounds like this, right? It's a very dangerous road to go down. But we say, well, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being friendly with Rome. Right? There's nothing wrong with being friendly with our culture. It's just a little pinch of incense on the altar. What? Come on, it's just a little, a little dab. No big deal. We, we say, oh, just, just this once, right? Or, or just a little bit, or just that one drink, or just one night. After all, Jesus will forgive me. This is how compromise creeps in. I, I, we were in Sunday school, and, and someone mentioned that there was this, um, this commercial came on. And it said, basically towards the end of the commercial on the bottom, it said, uh, I think something to the effect of Jesus. Jesus let his hair down. Right? Hey, Jesus let his hair down. You should too. He, he gets you. It, says, it said that he, he gets us. What does that mean? You should be okay doing your thing, going your way, because Jesus gets it, and he let his hair down too, so have fun. He'll sort it out eventually. We'll all be good in the end. That is how compromise creeps in, and it should not be that way. The one who has the double-edged sword out of his mouth is addressing the church saying no. No to that. We don't allow compromise to creep in. And listen, some, sometimes we think, well, you know, that, Brandon, that's, that's where I really feel free when I'm, when I'm doing that or behaving that way or around those people or I can let my hair down. I feel real freedom there. No, that is not real freedom. That is not what it really feels like. Second Peter chapter 2, I want to read this. He talks about these people. These people are springs without water. So it looks like real freedom. It seems like something refreshing. I want to go towards this. They're springs without water. They're mists driven by storms. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce. They're, we're seduced, right? By, by empty words, empty promises. They aren't real, lasting promises. They're empty. We're seduced with our fleshly desires and debauchery. It says they promise that they, those things we go towards, those compromises we allow in, they promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. We go there and we feel defeated, deflated. We feel sinful. We feel wrong. We feel guilty. That wasn't freedom. That was being enslaved. Being enslaved to sin. Know that captivity awaits as sin is accepted into our lives. Captivity awaits as sin is allowed to creep into the church as well. That's why Paul writes to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Be careful. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit based on human tradition or based on the elements of this world rather than on Christ. He's saying, be taken captive by no one except Jesus. Because in Christ there is real freedom. Listen, what's interesting about this sword, and we'll come back to it in a few minutes, this sword out of his mouth, for many, they're like, oh man, I'm scared of Jesus. I, don't, I'm not, I can't do this. I, this is not going to be good. You're right. That sword out of his mouth is a sword of judgment. But you know what that sword also does? It cuts the chains of bondage and captivity from our hearts. It frees us from, from being enslaved to sin and, and frees us so we can entrust ourselves to our Savior. There's beauty in that sword out of his mouth. There is freedom in the sword that comes out of his mouth when we would just hold on to Jesus instead of holding on to our sin. It's so 
important for us to get. He goes on in Colossians, down in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, listen, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, if, if that sword cut your chains, then why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, or do handle, do taste, do touch, right? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom and promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. What we think is freedom is not freedom. That's, that's the crux of that. What we think is freedom in the world is actually not freedom. It does nothing for us. There's no value there. They won't satisfy. Those things won't satisfy us. Jesus said in John 6, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal of approval on him. Listen, today we're, in a, in a few minutes, we're going to start partaking in the Lord's Supper together. We have the elements here, the bread and the, and the juice reminds us in, remember, in remembrance of Jesus' body that he gave us and the blood that he shed for us. Now, this church was compromising, and they were, they were going out sacrificing food to idols that were no God at all. It was of no value at all. It was food that would perish. And they were partaking in that, thinking that somehow that would save. It would not. They were chained to that. They were bound to that. But today, as you and I come, I hope that we're admonished in, in our repentance to come down and receive what the Lord has done for us. That, that this was accomplished because of the sword out of his mouth. And, and, and through his death and resurrection, he made a way for us to be free from the bondage of sin. To be free from, from pursuing those things that would wear out and run out and never satisfy. Only Christ fully satisfies. That leads us to our third and final point today. The admonition to this church. What was the admi admonition, the, the encouragement? Repent and be satisfied and secure in Christ alone. Repent and be satisfied and secure in Christ alone. Stop trying to grab onto something else. Listen, you had your hands somewhere. A lot of the church has, has their hands on it. They're holding on to Jesus. They need to tell the others, this is the, the answer, not that. We need to repent and be satisfied and secure in Jesus Christ alone. He says, so repent, in verse 16. Otherwise, I will come quickly and fight against them with a sword out of my mouth. He's like, this is serious. It needs to be cut out and stopped. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's what he says, the promise that's there. To the one who conquers, I, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on, a new, uh, and on that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So let's, let's break this down quickly. What was the remedy, right? Well, the remedy was a sword of judgment and a sword of freedom. He said, listen, there's judgment to be had as you pursue sin, as you let compromise come in you're going to be cut out and cut off. Or you could repent of that and turn back to Christ and, and remain in him, hold on to him tightly, and he will take that sword and he will break the chains of doubt, break the chains of bondage to sin, and he will free you from that. So you could hold on to him ever more tightly. He talks about the manna as well, the hidden manna. The hidden manna he is going to give is himself. He already gave it. He says, you don't need to go sacrifice this food to idols and eat this food and partake of that food. You partake of me. You, every time you break the bread, every time you drink the wine or the juice, you remember what I have done for you. You remember the way that I've given my life for you so that you could live. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6. 
He's, he again says, and I, I'm repeating this verse in 27, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. There is a food, there is a manna, there is a way that we can have this full approval, this full satisfaction, and that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Period. What, what can we do to perform these works, they asked. He replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. You believe in the one that he, that he sent. Well, what sign are you going to do that we might, might see and believe? What are you going to perform? Our, our ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then he responded, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread of God, the satisfaction of God, the, 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 everything that we need. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. That's Jesus Christ. They say, well, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. No one comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. It's like, you're hungry, you're, but you're looking for love in all the wrong places. You're hungry, but I have the only thing that will ever satisfy. I laid down my life, I gave my body, I poured out my blood, so that you and so that I can be free through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would never be hungry and never be thirsty again. We would fully be satisfied in him. Do you know what it takes to not let go of Jesus? To be fully satisfied by Jesus. I, and I don't know where you're at. I, I, maybe maybe you, you think you're fully satisfied or this kind of feels good. It's maybe the, one of the brighter days, songs where you're like, feel, I feel it in my gut, but I don't know. It's not about that. It's about you coming to faith in Christ, turning from your own ways, your own sin, and coming and abandoning that and coming to Jesus for everything. Being hungry and thirsty for him, and he will fill you up. He is the manna. He's that hidden manna that will come. And then we see, he says, I'll give him the white stone. And we're like, what does this mean? What does this culturally mean? Well, culturally, uh, the tessera was a, a ceremonial stone given in several ways. I'm going to give you three different ways that, that culturally could have been uh, seen during this time. And it's an encouragement to the church to say, listen, I, I'm Jesus. I've got a white stone for you. You don't need their white stone. One way was athletically, right? Athletes uh, who would win in their respective sport and were champions were given a white stone. Like, there's my trophy, okay? So they were overcomers of that sport, right? And Jesus says to the one who overcomes, I'll give a white stone, right? So he's saying, I, the real championship you need is the one with me. Uh, when you overcome temptation and you come to faith in me, you will be rewarded with a white stone. White stones were also given as tokens to pagan festivals and, and parties. Like when you got one of those, like, oh, I'm in, I've got the VIP card, I'm going to go. Naturally, obviously, the church didn't get many of those stones. People didn't go saying, let's go to those Christians and give them some white rocks. Now, maybe some of those in the church did because they were compromising. But, th but you feel a little left out. You feel like, man, I'm, I don't get to celebrate. I don't get to, to, to be with friends and, and participate in those things. What, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, you might not be welcome at these pagan feasts or be invited. Or maybe if you are, you need to throw that token out. But you need to rest assured when you hold on to me, when you trust in me, you will have a place at the party at my table. I, I am preparing a place for you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'll give you that white stone. You will be there when you trust in me. 
finally, I, and I love this, because we're talking about the blood and the body and remembering what Christ has done. We should desire His reward. We should desire what, what He gives us, not what we can achieve. White stones were also used as a stone to signify acquittal from a jury. So jurors would put out their stones, and if it was black, you're done. If it was white, I find you not guilty. While those witnesses, right, like Antipas, were probably condemned and saw no white stones in the court, what Jesus is saying is that, that through faith in Christ, we all can be given the white stone of forgiveness and be found not guilty in the courts of heaven. Why? Because I am guilty, but through faith in Christ, He makes me righteous. And so when we, today as we participate and partake in the Lord's Supper, we think about what church am I, what individual am I, is, have I let sin creep in? And if you've been letting sin creep in, stop, repent, turn back to the, to the one that is fully satisfying, fully sufficient. Turn back to the sacrifice that He gave you the way that he, he gave himself so you might be forgiven and free. Let that double-edged sword be a freedom today to you. And for those of us who are holding fast, and we have been holding on to Jesus tightly and holding on to his name, this is again a reminder of, and a model to say, listen, we continue to hold on, and we hold on because of what he has done. He has accomplished everything. Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, we have life. I want to read one last, one last passage before we into the communion time in John 6. It's at the end of this now. He's, he said he's the bread and the, and the blood, and he said you got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Everyone's like, ooh, gross, we're leaving, and they, they left. They weren't understanding that this was about the Spirit of God and what the Spirit would do. But in verse 67 of John 6, after they left, uh, or in ver- Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away too? Do you want to leave as well? So important for us to ask, ask that question of ourselves. Are, are we, do we want to leave? Is there something actually here for us? Or do we want to leave too? Is this too much? I don't, I don't want to be convicted about my compromise. What is, what is said here by the disciples? Do you want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, what does he say? Remember this? Where are we going to go? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What was known? That Jesus is their everything. That there was nowhere else they could go. You could go to whatever sin you think, or preference you think, or group you think, or tradition you think, and think, this is going to be it. And it is not. We have to answer that in our heart. To whom will we go? And, and the answer should be, nowhere else but Jesus. No one else but Jesus. And, and going back to Jesus, remember, he knows. He knows what you really believe. He knows what you're really being satisfied in. And the call for you and the call for me today is to repent and be found satisfied in Christ alone. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love. God, as we look to the letters of the churches in Revelation, God, these are letters of rebuke, but they are letters from love. God, you want us to be pure and holy, to be set apart, a people for your own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. So help us to do that, Father. 
God, as we, as we look around or, or see how compromise might be creeping into our lives or the life, life of our church, God, may we respond in love and in kindness and in gentleness, but may, may we respond with truth, always pointing people back to the sufficiency and satisfaction we have fully realized because of Jesus. God, there's nothing we need to do except for turn to you. And God, today as we partake of the elements, God, of the, of the cracker, of the juice, symbolizing your blood and your, and your body, God, I pray that it would be a time of, of remembrance. God, we remember those soldiers who have given their lives for our freedom, but God, we remember your life that was given for us for our spiritual freedom, for our eternal freedom. And God, that will persevere forever. So God, as we partake, may it be a boast in the Lord. May it be us saying that you are the one that's fully satisfying and that we are fully satisfied in you. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.